discussed Havana as a place to live and work. Character like me, Hemingway said, the whole world to choose from. They naturally want to know why here. Usually don't try to explain. Too complicated. The clear, cool mornings when you can work good with just Black Dog awake and the fighting cocks sending out their first bulletins. Now, where else can you train cocks and fight them and bet those you believe in and be legal? Some people put the arm on fighting cocks as cruel. But what the hell else does a fighting cock like to do? The Dietrys kept coming as we discussed Robert Flaherty's documentary films, which Hemingway greatly admired, Ted Williams, The Book of the Month Club, Lena Horne, Proust, Television, Swordfish Recipes, Aphrodisiacs, and Indians until 8 o'clock, not threatening the hemingway Dietry record but setting an all-time Hotchner high of 7. Hemingway took a drink with him for the road, sitting in the front seat of the station wagon next to his chauffeur Juan, and I somehow managed to retain in the rum mist of my head that he was going to pick me up the following morning to go out in his boat. I also managed to make some notes on our conversation, the beginning of a practice that I followed during the entire time I knew him. Later on I augmented these journals with conversations recorded on pocket tape transistors that we carried when we traveled. There were two pillars in Hemingway's life, one the lusty partisan for whom the bell tolls, the other a forty-foot cabin cruiser with a flying bridge and the capacity to fish four rods. The seagoing Pilar was docked in Havana, and its mate since 1938 had been a lean Indian-skinned man named Gregorio Fuentes. During the war, the Pilar had been converted to anti-sub duty and had operated under naval intelligence, disguised as a fishing boat, but carrying bazookas, machine guns, and high explosives. She hadn't seen any action, but had radioed good information about U-boat locations, and was credited with locating several subs which were bombed and presumed sunk. The morning after my first meeting with Ernest, I was introduced to the Pilar and Gregorio and deep-sea fishing. Under Ernest's instruction, I even boated my first marlin. As we returned from the boat to the Nacional, Ernest made his first and only reference to the note I'd sent him on the future of literature. I was going back to New York the following morning, and we were shaking hands on the sidewalk in front of the hotel. The fact is, I do not know a damn about the future of anything, he said. I was startled by the abrupt reference. Oh, sure, just forget. What are they paying? Fifteen thousand. Well, that's enough to perk up the future of literature in itself. Tell you what, send me tear sheets or manuscripts of what any of your other masterminds have written so I get the pitch. Also a contract. If it legally checks out that pieces contracted for by a bona fide non-resident and written outside the states are tax-free so long as the non-resident stays out of the country six consecutive months, then I'll write a good straight piece about what I think and will try to straighten up and think as good as I can. Six months after my first visit to Havana, the article on the future of literature had not been written. Ernest invited my wife and me to the Finca, entertained us with a three-day cool-out, then proposed that he'd write Cosmopolitan two short stories. It would be better for him in the magazine, he said, if he did fiction, which was his forte, instead of a think piece, which was not. But he said one article did not equal two stories in value. Subsequently, the payment was raised to $25,000. Late in July, Ernest telephoned to report that the project had taken another turn and suggested that my wife and I visit him in September. It turned out that he had started one of the stories that spring while he'd been hospitalized in Italy with an eye infection. He said he had started it to pay for his imminent funeral expenses. As he improved, however, the story grew until now it gave every indication of becoming a novel. Ernest was calling it Across the River and Into the Trees. All of my books started as short stories, he said. I never sat down to write a novel. We were on the pillar when he gave me the first chapters to read, sitting beside me, reading over my shoulder. In years ahead, I was to learn that all works in progress would be shown to me in this manner. I eventually learned to detach myself from the author at my shoulder, 
Now, however, Ernest completely distracted me with his reactions to the manuscript, laughing at places, commenting at others as if it were someone else's book. I finally got permission to read it alone later. Great black cumulus clouds were forming in the sky. The sea was getting choppy, and my wife Geraldine was four months pregnant, so we decided to head to the Kawama for lunch. By the time Gregorio anchored the boat, several hundred yards from shore, the water was very turbulent, but the club had no docking facilities, so we had to swim ashore. Mary could borrow clothes from Geraldine, but Ernest looked me up and down with narrowed eyes and shook his head. Hotchner, an exchange of pants is hopeless. I'll carry mine. I thought he meant he would put a pair in a watertight bag and tow it in, but that was the easy way. The women dived off and started to swim. Ernest had taken a pair of shorts and a shirt, rolled them up tightly with a bottle of good claret inside because he didn't trust the Kawama wine, and secured the roll with his Gott mit uns leather belt. He descended the boat's ladder and lowered himself carefully into the water. He had the roll in his left hand, which he held straight up over his...